Want to know one of the most common budget categories I see with a note that says, I would love to add this someday when I'm building custom budgets? It's giving. Most people want to give to causes and organizations they love, but many struggle to fit it into their budget or think that the amount they can give won't matter. Today, I'm chatting with Nathan Hill from Next After about the impact you can make through giving, regardless of the dollar amount. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's trusted financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. The nerds have helped people like me get smarter about things like saving on travel, spending less on airfare leaves more money for food and fun, putting away money for retirement, I hate to break it to you, but I don't plan on doing this podcast forever, and saving up an emergency fund, because life is like a movie, it loves a good plot twist. The good news is we can learn how to be prepared for those twists and turns. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. So today on the Debt Free Mom Podcast, we are talking all about generosity and giving. And today I have Nathan Hill, and it's not just a coincidence that his last name is Hill. I am actually married to Nathan's brother. So Nathan and I have known each other for a long time, but now we get to talk in a more professional setting. So Nathan, can you tell us what you do and why you would be part of a conversation about generosity and giving? Yeah. Well, first of all, this is a very strange experience Same. <laughs> talking to you in this setting, uh, but I like it. I'm excited for it. Yeah. So what I do, I work for a company called Next After, and I oversee what we call the Next After Institute. In short, what our company does, we help nonprofits grow their digital fundraising. And so we're a full service like digital fundraising marketing agency for nonprofits. What I do on the Institute side is I really take everything that we are learning from research, trying to go understand what are nonprofits doing today to try to grow giving. You know, I'm conducting a lot of that research and I'm taking those learnings and trying to feed them back to the nonprofit marketplace. I'm also trying to lead the charge at our company around how do we run more testing and experimentation with the goal of you know, our mission is to decode what works to grow giving. So we run a lot of A-B testing, look at a lot of data and statistics and all sorts of things to try to decode what's going to move the needle to get more people to say yes and actually part with your hard-earned money and entrust it to someone else to go do something impactful. So I'm trying to more or less like understand all the different learnings from those kind of two pieces of research and then go turn that into training and courses and materials to go equip as many nonprofits as we can with what actually works so that we can see giving and generosity grow. Okay, cool. So most of the time you are actually talking to the organizations, not to the donors. Is that right? Exactly. We sit in this weird balance of we're, I mean, we're mostly talking to fundraisers or mostly talking to marketers at nonprofit organizations and, and charities, but then also trying to do everything that we can to put ourselves in the mindset and in the shoes of a donor so we can understand like what are the obstacles that keep people from actually giving and not just using what people say and survey data and that sort of thing, because people can behave in a radically different way than they think they're going to behave. Mm -hmm. So that's why we're bringing data to that conversation. 
So from my side of it, I see just like you're looking at insights into why people do the things that they do, why they behave the way they do. I also have a cool window into what people do by getting to see their budgets and by getting to see the way that people earn money and then the way that they choose to spend that money. So as I'm looking at people's budgets, not a lot of people give regularly, but a lot of people want to give. So if they don't give, they'll mention something like, oh, well, I like to give to school occasionally or at the end of the year, I'll do something for Christmas, but they're not really doing it consistently. So if someone has an organization or a cause that they love that they maybe wish that they could give more to, what are some of the benefits that you see for that organization of having someone who regularly gives instead of haphazardly gives? Yeah. Well, a a kind of a weird thing that comes up a lot when we are working with different organizations, charities, fundraisers, et cetera, is that many nonprofits have a really hard time articulating why it is more valuable to give on a recurring basis. Like you see, I mean, ads and offers and that sort of thing and emails, direct mail, all that sort of stuff where people obviously want you to give on a monthly basis. And there's clear like economic value from that for the organization because they can go project out what the revenue is going to be, which helps them set budgets and that sort of stuff to understand where they can invest and how much they can invest rather than being reliant purely on just, mm, I hope that they give again, mm-hmm. like they gave once, we hope they're going to give again. There's also lots of data, I mean, for on the, the fundraising side of things to go look at lifetime value of a donor and that sort of thing. If someone is a recurring giver, rather than just giving one time every now and again. So there's donor retention rates, we're looking at all sorts of that kind of data um, that donors don't care about, <laughs> but what we care about is mm-hmm. we're trying to figure out what's going to move the needle. And when it comes down to it, most nonprofits just don't communicate effectively as to why is it better? Why is it more impactful to give mm-hmm. at that on a recurring basis? And it, quite honestly, it's really hard to make that kind of an argument to someone who's giving, you know, at, at, I would say a smaller level, whether it's 20 bucks a month or it's mm-hmm. 50 bucks or a hundred bucks a month to make just like a purely economic argument as to Mm -hmm. why it feels a little bit cold and stale. And that's where like trying to really understand, like as the donor who's making that decision, trying to really understand from the organization, what is actually fundamentally going to happen with this money Mm -hmm. (laughs) when I give it to you on a monthly basis? Yes, I could write you a lump sum check at the end of the year to get whatever tax benefit I need from it and that sort of thing. But there has to be a unique value of me, whether it's supporting a, a specific person or a specific program or something that needs ongoing funding. That's what's really hard from the donor side of it is you don't have all those answers and nonprofits by and large have a really hard time communicating that stuff, especially in a digital channel, which is where we live most of the time. So I don't know if that gives you like complete answer yeah. to the question, but it, it certainly shows the I I think what would be interesting is I I would imagine that from a donor perspective or being a donor myself, if I have a organization that I'm passionate about or even just a cause that I'm passionate about and I think, oh, well, the amount that I can give probably doesn't do anything, probably doesn't do a whole lot. But if I were to know that, like you said, what they can plan for in advance is different if I'm regularly giving than if I'm haphazardly giving, I think if 
if maybe people listening would recognize that the exact same amount of money might have a slightly, even if it's one or 2% more, a slightly larger impact positively to the cause that they love so much by being consistent and planned versus being haphazard. It's like if you get a random bonus that you weren't expecting, that's really exciting and you do something with it, but you do it one time and it doesn't really change how you plan your budget. But if you get a raise for $20 a month, you can actually change what you plan to do over time. And so helping a potential donor see that the exact same amount of money might have a slightly bigger impact than being unexpected could maybe be like, oh, well, I care about that cause and I want to help it as much as I can. And if I can't give more money, maybe I can just make that same money be more planned and consistent. Yeah. That's such a good connection because it is this like, granted, like budgets are very different when you're looking at a large nonprofit versus your your average uh, person's personal budget. But it's the same philosophy. It's the same principle that's at work. I think there's, there's potentially, and I don't want to, I don't want to overemphasize like efficiency of a gift, meaning like a lot of times when like the, the bare minimum way to sort of evaluate the impact of a donation at a particular charity, most people default to looking at things like, well, what percentage of my donation is actually going towards the programs mm-hmm. versus, you know, quote unquote overhead, which we could have a long sure. conversation about that because I think the the logic in that conversation is, is fundamentally flawed. And um, we can talk about that if you want to. But like, if you want to see more of your donation go directly to the cause, like a, a recurring gift because it allows for a nonprofit to plan that better. Like mm-hmm. it's less work that has to go in to go uh, from the fundraiser side of it to go reacquire a donation mm-hmm. or to get you to give for that second time or for that third time, which means maybe they don't have to spend quite as much on those kind of overhead marketing pieces that you know don- donors don't necessarily like to see, even though they're essential to growth and impact. So it, it may make your gift actually more efficient because you allow the organization to plan better. On that same note, if you'll let me chat about efficiency as we're like thinking about who to give to and how much you would give to a different organization. Again, that's kind of like the default mentality is to go look at what percent goes to the programs. Because as a donor and I give and you give, like Mm -hmm. we want to see as much of our funds go to actually helping a person or helping whatever the cause is as much as is possible. Dan Pallotta, he has a, a TED talk from probably 10, 15 years ago or so. And it's it's wonderful. You should look him up. But he has this whole, he makes this whole argument. It's really well done. And actually there's a new movie that he just released about a month ago called Uncharitable that just explores this kind of concept of the, the flaw in just looking at efficiency of giving. And he makes a really compelling argument that we need to be looking at impact. And mm-hmm. we've, as a culture, we have made this idea of quote unquote overhead the most important thing. But, you know, if I'm going to give a hundred bucks, would I rather have my hundred dollars go directly to a person or to the program? Or what if 80 of my dollars went directly to the thing, to the program, but they could use the $20 to actually go turn that into an additional like $500 over Mm -hmm. the next couple of years. And now you think about that at scale, there's so much more impact that can be made if we measure results based on impact and yeah. not on overhead and efficiency. Why do you think organizations then are the ones that are putting out that so 
clearly because like if you go I know I've looked at lots of them or you even get them in emails where it's like hey if you donate then you know this percent I even know one organization that kind of boasts about being the one that uses the most of your money so why is that something that they themselves are pushing if it's not necessarily helping their overall mission I think it's perceived as being an effective way to help someone understand that their gift is valued and going to something that they care about. So I think there's just, there's a perception that's been created that is important, but also, I mean, as a culture, I think donors have been trained Mm -hmm. to think that that's the most important thing. And in that movie, that uncharitable film, there's a lot of different examples that they kind of go through of, of some pretty major organizations that have been doing tremendous things, incredible things, making enormous impact, and then have basically been, uh, I would use, I'll use the word outed, even though I don't really believe it, like outed is like, oh, this percent is actually going towards, you know, stuff for executives mm-hmm. and to marketing and to blah, 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 blah. And the reality is that after that kind of reporting and journalism came out, people stopped giving and then impact falls off a cliff. And so like a lot of that is just driven by culture and media and all that sort of stuff and how we perceive What's important? Mm-hmm. And so the whole Dan Pilata argument is like, we've got to change that mentality. And that's the only way they're actually going to actually see some of the world's most complicated problems get solved is if we care about the impact of our mm-hmm. money as opposed to just the efficiency of our money. Anyway, that's so, like a sidebar, but yeah, so. no, I, I want to focus on that a little bit. If you, knowing what you know and the work that you've done, if you can make wave a magic wand and have the idea of efficiency go away, what would you replace it with? Like, what do you think donors actually need to know in order to be like, oh, that is an organization that is actually making the impact that they're claiming to make? Yeah, that's a really, it's a really good question. When we coaching a nonprofit, coaching fundraisers, that sort of thing, we often talk about how do you communicate your value proposition? Because I don't think like the measurement is the same for mm-hmm. everyone, like from cause to cause, even from organization to organization that's pursuing the same you know, general kind of impact, like your measurement probably is going to change in, in, in terms of what you care about. But we talk about how do you communicate your value proposition? And you need to have a strong appeal, which is really kind of the core reasons that someone should give. But as we've talked a a little bit about, like you have to help someone understand what their gift is actually going to do. Because oftentimes we've got, there's organizations, whether large or small, they're normally trying to tackle a really big problem. And if you could tackle the problem and solve it with a $10,000 gift, you probably go find somebody to make a $10,000 gift, bam, problem solved, move on to the next thing. The reality is that the solutions to the problems that we're trying to solve as charities, are big mm-hmm. <laughs> and the solutions can't be solved with just a singular gift. But then the work is then put onto the nonprofit, the fundraiser, if you will, to then communicate to a donor who's going to give 50 bucks, hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're given a thousand. Like what does your gift practically and actually do? Mm-hmm. And then go back that up with credibility <clears throat> through reviews, through testimonials, through even just through storytelling over time, whether that's through email communication, that's through what they're doing in their marketing and video content out in the world. But that's where like we have to show people what is actually happening with, with funds mm-hmm. because we live in a day and age where like institutional trust has mm-hmm. eroded so much that you can't just say like, oh yeah, just trust us because we mm-hmm. are a nonprofit. There's a speaker at our, our conference about a month ago who was sharing some of those stats on just like the trust that people have in brands. Mm-hmm. And at this point, 
it's nobody trusts nonprofits. They don't yeah. trust them any more than they trust a for-profit. We trust individual people mm-hmm. a heck of a lot more than we trust any sort of institution or organization. So we've got to we've got to show our receipts on the impact to actually yeah. help donors trust that their money is going to something meaningful. And it's almost like antitrust. It's like the fact that you are an organization repels trust. It's not just like that organization has done something to take away my trust. It's like inherently because you're an organization, yeah. I'm almost at, at this point, people in general are primed to say, oh, that's, that is cause for distrust. Simply the fact that they are an organization or that they have a CEO or that they have an office means I'm not supposed to trust them. So to piggyback off of that with the idea of trusting an individual over an organization, I have several times run like, I don't even, I wouldn't call it like a campaign. I've basically just said, I will gather small donations on Venmo and PayPal towards this organization or towards this cause. So World Central Kitchen is one I've done several times. St. Jude is one I've done. I did Save the Children right when the Ukraine conflict started. And what has been confusing for me has been how quickly people are willing to send me money who they have never met, who I have no regulation whatsoever, no oversight. There would be no repercussions whatsoever if I took all of that money and and went on vacation. Like there would absolutely, there would be nothing, no recourse that the donor could have against me. But people who have not given before will gladly send me money on PayPal and Venmo. So what why, I guess, like from your, like, do you have any perspective as you've talked to organizations who struggle with that, they struggle with that institutional distrust, what might be the root cause of that, number one? And then number two, how might organizations leverage what is happening there in order to then regain that trust? I'm, I, I would just love your thoughts on general in that phenomenon, because as yeah. the person who's taken the money, it's been confusing for me. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I do think it starts with with that, you know, what we, we kind of already said, like just institutional trust is gone. We trust people more than we trust institutions mm-hmm. as a whole, unless you've really, really, really gone out of your way to build a, a trustworthy brand, which there mm-hmm. are, are some for sure. And the root of that, I couldn't say exactly. There's a lot of thinking around what the root of that is. A lot of it has to do with the way that things are reported in media today and access mm-hmm. to just more information. Yeah. So lots has, has changed even over the past just couple of generations in, in terms of all that level of trust. So I, I mentioned our conference we connected, we hosted about a month ago. Carlos Whitaker is who I'm a Carlos Whitaker fanboy. Big fan, big fan here. Uh-huh. Part of the Insta Familia over here. Yes. Um, I have to just pause and say that the one time I was actually able to communicate with him on Instagram was because he posted his exact height and weight. And I responded that I am the exact same height and weight. And he thought it was so funny. I, I told, I just responded and I was like, Hey, if you ever need a stand in, I am the exact same height and weight as you. And he like loved it. And then I met him a year later and I was like, Hey, I'm the one that's the exact same height and weight as you. And he remembered it like exactly. Whoa. He was like, I was on a plane to this sort of thing when that happened. And that was so funny. So just for anyone listening, if you ever need a Carlos Whitaker body double, I am your girl. <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic. okay. Moving on. You gotta just shave your head and you'll be good. Um, yeah, stick a hat on, smile a lot more than I do now. <laughs> that's hilarious. Well, so he spoke at our conference and was breaking down some of that because he does a very similar thing, mm-hmm. as you know. And it's just it's incredible the the movement. I th- I'll call it a movement. I don't know if mm-hmm. you, if you would. That's been just built around 
almost him as a as a personality, but also just kind of what he represents, which is just how do we start to treat people like people and humans like humans and get mm-hmm. rid of all the just the vitriol that's often in the world and just see people as people. Mm-hmm. And that's a really compelling, you know, philosophy and, and mindset. And so anyway, they he rallies people to give to lots of different causes. And he was sharing both wins, but also mistakes <laughs> along the way. Mm-hmm. And was very transparent about a lot of that stuff. But no, it was really interesting for him to express the same thing that you're expressing, which is like, why do people trust me just to some mm-hmm. more or less? I, I wouldn't call him a random person on Instagram, but more mm-hmm. or less, he's just another, he is just another person mm-hmm. on Instagram and other platforms that's asking you to send money mm-hmm. to his Venmo account mm-hmm. and asking you to just trust him. That he's going to go give that, like one of the more recent ones was giving money to, after the, the school shooting that was in Nashville, the, that whole group raised money to go basically send all of the faculty, staff, teachers, uh, and I think even parents, like to pay for at least three like counseling therapy sessions for everyone, which is amazing mm-hmm. um, to see that level of generosity. All that money just flowed through his Venmo account. And I mean, it doesn't take a pro in Photoshop to go just like yeah. fabricate all that stuff, pocket the cash mm-hmm. and run. So why do we do that? Yeah. And I think it comes back like we don't trust organizations and we trust people. Mm-hmm. And that honestly, that's a it's a principle and it's a philosophy that that we try to encourage nonprofits to adopt in their communication, which is like, mm-hmm. yeah, you have your brand and it's really valuable, but people don't give to marketing machines. Mm-hmm. People give to people, people give to yeah. people that they know and that they trust. And so like, mm-hmm. we have to go build that level of trust on a human to human level, even if it's through email communication that we all know is either automated or done in mass. It's not actually one-to-one, but we have mm-hmm. to try <laughs> to be human and genuine and personal in order to build that trust so that people trust us to make the impact we say that we can make. But I agree. It's a very weird phenomenon. Yeah, for sure. So what would your what would you say to people who who are saying, hey, I would rather give to Carly's Venmo than to St. Jude Children's Hospital? Um, like what would your you have expertise in that? How would you respond to that lack of trust? Is it warranted? Or would you say, hey, these are actually like vetted organizations, you can trust what they say? What would you say to a hesitant donor who's hesitant because of trust? <laughs> The vast majority of organizations you can trust, but I get why there's a lack of trust because there, again, there are so many stories where money has not been used in the right way in so many different categories and, and areas. And so I, I do think though, I mean, I get, I'm a product of my own generation. So like I'm in agreement, I don't mm-hmm. trust institutions and I would rather give you my money if because I trust that you are going to go give it to something meaningful. Even if it ends up still going to St. Jude, like I, I think trust that's the, like- that's the confusing part to me is <laughs> if I, if I'm successful, then I'm giving it to the exact organization that you're saying you don't trust. That That's the confusing part for me is like, I, you trust me, but you don't trust World Central Kitchen. So you want to give your money to me so that I can give it to World Central Kitchen. And maybe it's just that then the onus is on me. If, you know, if World Central Kitchen ends up not being reliable, then it's my fault, not theirs, because they're a degree removed from it. I, I don't know, but that, that is a confusing said part. this money was going to do this thing yeah. and it, it didn't. Now and they have two that they can, they can point the finger at the institution and at me. Yeah. It could be that. It's probably a mix of a lot of things. It also, I, I wonder if it it is just simply a matter of 
understanding too. Like I trust that Carly, who I also trust with, you know, understanding my budget better and how to be more effective with my money. I trust that she's put the work in to understand mm-hmm. where to best invest my money in order to make a positive impact. So, yeah. so maybe that's, that's part of it is I haven't done the work to know what's mm-hmm. going to be helpful and impactful for people, but mm-hmm. I want to give, but Carly has helped me cross that bridge to understand what's, what's going to be most effective and impactful. It lowers the bar. It lowers the fear level. Cause it's just like, Oh, well I've been, you know, I've watched her in on Instagram for three years. So she feels known even though she's not, you know, like, but it's just a, it's a feeling rather than it is evidence, I guess I would say. So if someone is actually the opposite and they're like, no, I don't want to just give to a random person on Instagram and I want to give, but I'm hesitant because of that lack of institutional trust. What are practical things that you would say, like, look for this on their website, or I know you can't, you know, vet 100%, but here's how to have a metric for more trustworthy rather than not. Yeah. Well, as, as a, a bit of an insider to know, especially with the amount of research we conduct to try to understand like what are nonprofits doing on their donation pages and that sort of thing. Cause especially like with year-end giving coming up and all that sort of stuff, you're probably going to get a billion emails in your inbox Mm -hmm. and stuff in your mailbox. And it's going to drive you to a website to give. And through our research, we have a pretty clear understanding that the vast majority of nonprofits don't really communicate anything meaningful on their donation page to help you understand any more about why you should give. So just to throw some stats out there, the, the benchmark for a a main donation page conversion rate, which is how many people that land on a donation page actually give a gift is like 19%. Hmm. It means that 81% of people that show up with the intention of giving, maybe they're just there to find out more, but oftentimes there's not more to find out mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or there's actual like problems on the page, something with the form, something on the page that's triggering anxiety that causes you to bail. So there's work to be done there. Knowing that like, there's probably not going to be enough information on the page for you to decide, do I trust you? Do I want to make this impact? What is the impact? Like I can give hope anywhere. And you're telling me I can give hope when I give a hundred bucks. What the heck does that mean? That doesn't mean anything. (laughs) So, I mean, quick, quick places to look is go to their about page, go find an impact report because they're required to post an impact report annually. And, you know, there's a lot of variance in terms of what those look like. You can look at financials and that sort of stuff. Again, I would focus more on what are they communicating in terms of how many people they've been able to impact, what are the testimonials and stories that they're sharing that actually show you the the receipts for the impact that they're making. So that 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 would be I guess a kind of a baseline encouragement is like don't just if you're look actively looking to give and you're considering a specific charity, don't just stop at the donation page, spend some time looking around, see what they're actually sharing and then as someone in the fundraising space, I don't ever feel like we should put the work on a donor to have to mm. go find that sort of stuff. But now from that perspective, mm-hmm. if I'm trying to figure out where to give, don't be afraid to ask questions because mm-hmm. likely it's a really good cause. Likely it's a really good charity. Mm-hmm. And th- maybe they're just lacking the communication from a marketing perspective skills to to communicate effectively through their channels to you. But I bet you, if you picked up the phone and you called someone, which I know is really hard to do in Mm -hmm. 2023, but if you picked up the phone and you called someone, you actually talked to someone at the organization, they can tell you all the things. They can tell Mm -hmm. you all about the financials. They can tell you about the program. They can tell you what they're planning for 2024 and what's coming up and the ways that they're Mm -hmm. trying to see impact. And oftentimes they're just struggling because they have a vision 
but they don't have the funding to go mm-hmm. get it and they need your help. <laughs> so yeah, so they're they're motivated to take that call. Absolutely, absolutely. And even if it's for a small donation, because again, you know, from this side of the fence, looking at like larger kind of data samples and everything, like most of those fundraisers know that if you come in as a $20 a month donor, at the end of the day, many fundraisers are looking, uh, ultimately, when they're looking at their whole budget, yeah, they want to grow like major donations and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But most people that give a major donation, they start out by giving a small dollar donation. Mm -hmm. And then you start to see the impact of your gift over time. And maybe you end up at a point a few years down the road where you can give a more significant gift. Or maybe you can give one now, but you're just not ready because you don't trust anybody. But the first step is to, you know, dip your toes in, find out more information, give them a gift, see how they communicate back to you. How do they show you the work that's being Mm -hmm. done? And then you can make a more informed decision next year about, do I want to increase? Do I want to give more? That's advice I give too for people who are terrified of investing. It's like invest $10 and just get over the experience of I've never done it before. And now you can say I've done it before. And it's like, oh, okay, the bad stuff I thought would happen didn't happen. And now I'm a little more confident. So next time I'll do $20. But it's like, if you want to invest $500 a month and you're terrified, you've got to start at 5, 10, 15. If you're not paid once a month, why are you budgeting that way? A monthly budget ignores the fact that sometimes your expenses are due before the next paycheck is available. A pay period budget is built around your unique pay schedules so that your money doesn't feel like a mess. Create an accurate, realistic plan for getting the most out of each paycheck. Get started budgeting by pay period today with the best-selling budget template and mini course from me, Debt-Free Mom. It's available for just $9 at debtfreemom.co slash template. So what would you say to somebody who is like, I'm just going to wait until I can give $100 a month because right now all I can do is 15 or 20 a month. Does a small recurring gift matter? Does it make an impact? Does, a, does an organization care about that? What, do you, what would you say to someone who's basically like my amount that I can give is uh, quote unquote too small? The power is in volume of people that are, are choosing to give. And yes, it seems there are lots of people who could give really significant uh, amounts of money. And it feels like a $20 donation or a $50, whatever, pales in comparison to that. And it's easy to take a back seat and just say, well, that's for someone else to do and it's not for me. But there's, <laughs> there's power in recurring investment over time. There's power in choosing to give on a monthly basis like that, especially knowing that you're likely not the only one. Even just as we... You know, as we run different sorts of fundraising campaigns and we're trying to get people to give on a recurring basis, it's really helpful oftentimes to say, we're looking for a hundred people to give $30 a month. And yes, it sounds like, oh, 30 bucks isn't that much. Well, 30 times 12 is a significant, you know, increase over just your one-time gift. And now multiply that by another hundred people that are going to give at that level level over a 12 month period, Mm -hmm. but likely for three to five years, that's really significant impact and even just Mm -hmm. remove yourself from that equation. Now it's only 99. That's actually a pretty big loss Mm -hmm. because there's power in consistency with that sort of stuff. And having that understanding that you're not alone, you're not the only one giving. uh, Mm -hmm. The only way that things get done is with movements of people Mm -hmm. uh, coming together. So that's my encouragement is that you can be part of that. And you may find along the way that they're doing some really cool work and you want to go bring other people into it, show them the impact that's being made. And you're now you're forming a community of people that care about a similar cause, want to see a similar impact made in the world. And selfishly, there's a lot of good vibes that come from giving. Yeah. And there's a lot of psychology to, 
to support that. So you'll feel yeah. better about yourself. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. And while also doing something really nice. So I have a story about that for it uh, was a at least two years ago now. So a lot of people might not have heard this, but when I did one of these giving campaigns, I found out about a person in Peoria who was escaping an abusive relationship. She had a son and she needed to get out and live somewhere else, but didn't have the money to do it. She was also an immigrant. And so I knew who her landlord was and her landlord was just trying to cover her and and get where she was, get where she needed to be. And I put out a challenge to my audience and I actually challenged them to only give a dollar. And I was like, I know that like you're, you're going to want to give a lot, but I actually only want you to give a dollar. And some, some people didn't listen to that, but that's okay. <laughs> but it was exactly what you just said of a movement where it was a couple hundred people who gave $1 that they would never miss. Like they won't even feel it. It won't even impact them. And yeah. we paid for her rent for four months. Oh my gosh. And it was just like, and, and I just remember, like, I just wanted to like show people. And I was like, you know, people say every dollar matters when we're talking about like where you spend it or, you know, like, like if you go shopping, if, if you can just, you know, reduce your spending by $10 a week, it actually adds up and nobody believes you. And mm-hmm. so I wanted to take this test case of, okay, this is something that's really going to tug at people's heartstrings. They're going to want to do whatever they can to help this person. And then I'm going to actually like reverse psychology and be like, I'm going to stop you from giving more. I only want you to give a dollar because I want it to represent how everybody coming together can actually change something. And so for the person who's like, I can only give a dollar, but I'm going to give it anyways. The people who said, but I'm going to give it anyways, times a couple hundred. And this woman and her son had a place to live for free for, you know, almost half a year. And so I think of that all the time when people are convinced that the small amounts don't matter. It's like, I I think that person isn't necessarily missing what a small amount of, a a small amount of money can or can't do, because you're right. A dollar can't do a whole lot, but I think they are missing what a lot of people together can do. And so I think it also just helps people to remember that the weight of any of these big causes that they want to give to is not on their shoulders alone. And so we see these giant problems in the world world, you know, minute by minute, basically at this point. And it's like, I can't solve that. And so I'm helpless to do anything for it. And it's, it's so empowering to realize that the small amounts put together actually do add up to something, something huge. So I'm, that's not a question. That's just a story (laughs) for people listening, because I, I agree wholeheartedly with what you're saying that like, if you actually do put those people together and connect them, actual change happens. Not just like we patted her on the back and handed her a Walmart gift card or something. It was like, that's actually life-changing for the rest of their life. I think there's probably also like a psychological element to that too of, yes, you have the people that you told only give me a dollar and give you maybe end up giving hundreds of dollars. But that's also the power in any kind of like grassroots movement. Like most change starts with, Small tweaks, Mm -hmm. small changes, small groups of people coming together to try to see something bigger happen. And -hmm. when you get enough momentum around that many people giving you a buck, well, somebody might say, wow, this is actually really important to a lot of people. And I actually have the means to give at a significant level to help multiply this, maybe by Mm -hmm. a factor of two or three or four or more, Mm -hmm. where they wouldn't have the confidence to do it if if it if you didn't have a thousand, ten thousand, however many people giving Mm -hmm. you one dollar. So that that's also the power of that level of generosity and maybe not so much in the dollar itself, but in the movement that it can create. 
Okay, so let's let's wrap up the conversation and then focusing on that last topic. What are positive impacts of giving to the donor? So if somebody is like, I am strapped for cash, I'm trying to just make ends meet, my, my money's a mess, I don't have a cause that I give, I'm one of those people that doesn't have that institutional trust, what could someone expect to experience by becoming a giver, even if it is five, ten dollars a month? Part of this is just an opinion, but I think starting down that path of giving, even if it's small, even if it's really small, (laughs) it develops a level of perspective of your money and what you're doing with it. And then when you can see the impact that even a small kind of pitch in size gift can make, it it puts everything in perspective. I think it gives you a better viewpoint on people around you and the world Mm -hmm. around you, even if you're in a hard situation. So I, I think there's personal value just from that side of it. There's also, again, there's a lot of psychology and research around, I said good vibes earlier, but just like <laughs> the, the truly like the positive mental impact, the view of yourself, all of that, that you have when you choose to be generous and, and give people feel happier when they give. And mm-hmm. so it can totally change just even like the chemistry in your brain <laughs> so mm-hmm. that you have a better outlook on life and better, even just better mental health. I've got a, a buddy who works at a nonprofit who um, was telling me about a campaign that they ran pretty recently that was trying to lean into that level of psychology. And it's kind of interesting to see they, they called it like the good vibes club. And that's how they were trying to pitch people to sign up to become a donor is you're going to get good vibes back in return. And also this impact too, but they just wanted to test that as a lever. It bombed. So like mm-hmm. for any fundraisers listening probably don't lead with that as the reason to give but it that that level of psychology is trusted so much that even major charities are trying to lean how do we actually use that as an appeal to get someone to actually understand the impact of their giving and actually choose to get over that line and and part with their money so lots of psychologists say it's a good thing on a bunch mm-hmm. of levels when you give mm-hmm. away your money of all the financial regrets i have giving is not one of them like you know for all the things that i think back with my money where i'm like dang, I would have done that different. I never would have bought that. I never would have done this. Giving has never been one of them. Yeah. In fact, I feel the opposite some, or the inverse of that sometimes. It's like, man, we bought this thing. Well, you know, What if we actually gave the money away? Wouldn't that have been better mm-hmm. than this yeah. thing that we thought we needed? And yeah, that's a, and more on a personal level than professional level. But I think it, it combines because it's like what we, you know, isn't that what anybody is really doing with their job as well as what we experience in our personal lives we're then carrying into our job. And I think you and I both have jobs like that where we're like, we've experienced something personal like giving. And then I see it as so valuable that I'll give my life's work at this, you know, currently in the jobs that we're doing to help yeah. other people do and experience the same, because it's something that we're so passionate about. I'm not obviously in the giving space, but I do think as people order their finances in a way where they're not constantly afraid of overdrafting and things like that, it actually opens the door to having it feel even possible to give. Yeah. I mean, our vision as a company is to unleash the most generous generation in the history of the world. We have an entire business model that is built on how do we get how do we help more people choose to be generous? Mm-hmm. So it, it's clearly an impactful lever for people. There's certainly something there in choosing to be gener- generous rather than to hold it to yourself, even if it's small. There's mm-hmm. something there that's really, really meaningful. Any last thoughts or anything that if you're like, man, I sit in front of nonprofits all day, now I'm actually sitting in front of the ears of a couple thousand donors instead of organizations. What would the nonprofits that you work with want to say if they had the ears of a couple thousand potential donors? 
Like, what are the things that they're like, oh, if they only knew this about us, then they would give. Yeah, I think there's a lot of assumptions that fundraisers make that donors know way more than they actually do about the organization. And I think it's a it's a cold dose of reality sometimes to realize that like, oh, they don't know what I'm talking about. I'm using a bunch of language. I'm using a bunch of words that like my donors don't understand. Or we think this thing is really important. And in reality, nobody who gives to us thinks that that thing is important. Mm -hmm. They like this thing over here. Yeah, you need to do this one, but they want to give to this one. So I, I don't know, a word of encouragement maybe to the donor out there is to when you have the opportunity to make your voice heard to those organizations. I mean, I guess when we talk about lack of institutional trust, like how does that get better? How does that get fixed? If you have the opportunity to speak into the work they're doing, give your thoughts, mm -hmm. give your opinions, they send out surveys and junk all the time. All and we the want time. to hear from you if we don't, if we don't reply, like I know it feels like marketing and it is a piece of marketing. That's for sure. They're hoping you respond to that. Maybe there's a donation form on the other end. They're hoping at least to you giving more later down the road because you've kind of been mm -hmm. primed for it. But the reality is like, that's your opportunity to give that kind of feedback which may help you actually build that trust back in, in these organizations to know that my money is going to something really, really meaningful. There's also, yeah. I would encourage people to, if you can't give or you can only give at a very small level and you want to give involved and make meaningful impact, like there's always volunteer opportunities with almost mm. every organization. And, and what's interesting is a lot of like, even if you don't feel like you have skills to offer in a particular area, Oftentimes the, the work that you do on an everyday basis, there's probably ways for you to plug that in. There's a wide variety mm -hmm. of ways you can jump in and volunteer with most any organizations. And, and all you really have to do is ask. So that's kind of a, to go right along with the year end fundraising giving theme. Yes, being generous with your money is meaningful, mm -hmm. but also just choosing a generous lifestyle of giving back with your time. Mm -hmm. That might even be more meaningful for yeah. both the organization and for you. And your time and your skills actually do have a monetary value when they're given to the organization. And so it's like, hey, if my bank account can't afford giving you $50, but my weekend can afford giving you an hour, that hour yeah. has actual value to the organization. That's an awesome way to end on it. Okay. I know I'm not an audience of nonprofit organizations, but if I happen to have a listener who is like, oh, actually I work for a nonprofit and I could use help in this area, where can people find you? What are you doing? And how can they get help increasing that generosity of their donors? Yeah. Well, first you can just email me. Nathan at nextafter.com is my email. So shoot me a note. I'd love to hear from you. Secondly, you can find out more about Next After and what we do at nextafter.com. But maybe more, most importantly, uh, the funnest thing that I get to do at the moment is we, we have a show called Decoding Generosity um, that actually is probably relevant to more than just the fundraiser on the, the listeners today. Because we just have a lot of fun trying to look at like what actually moves the needle on getting people to choose to be more generous and not just from like a fundraising standpoint, but mm -hmm. like we do a bunch of weird stuff, like we're building Legos, we're doing a bunch of skits to just illustrate what helps people choose to be generous. So if you go to decodinggenerosity.com, there's lots of fun stuff there. So go check that out. I think it's pretty fun. <laughs> All right. On this segment of Not Worth Your Money, I'm going to go first. And the one that I thought of is prepackaged snacks. Wow. We go through a lot of those in our household. 
So I'll explain what I thought of. I We do have some prepackaged snacks. I would say we have about a 50-50 mix, though, of like bulk bags of goldfish and pretzels and things like that. And then granola bars and those individually wrapped things. But I do try to really minimize them. The thing that I particularly thought of when I came up with this one is the little like hummus and pretzel container. Have you seen those before where it's like the pretzels on the bottom and the hummus on the top? The markup on something like that is absolutely insane compared to like if you bought a bag of pretzels and a container of hummus and split it into packs into the same size, you know, one ounce of pretzels and one ounce of hummus or something, I think it could get over double the number of snacks that you get by buying them prepackaged individually. Yeah. So I bought a lot like bulk orders of snacks when I worked for summer camp. We provided a daily snack every day for all of our campers. So we had about 400 campers a week, one snack every afternoon for every single one of them. It was a lot of snacks. And Mm -hmm. so I would go to Costco or Sam's Club and get one of those giant rolling pallets and just load up boxes and then fill the back of my Prius with as many boxes. Thousands of snacks. And a couple of things that I learned from that is basically everything that's labeled as a snack is a version of a cookie or a cracker. Mm -hmm. Like they're... When I think of a snack, that is part of it, but there's also like baby carrots or string cheese or like you said, hummus. And, Mm -hmm. you know, like those are the things fall into the snack category for me. But when it comes to actually buying snacks for, especially for kids, almost everything you're going to find that's labeled as a snack is a cookie of some kind. Yeah. And then the other thing too is I would always look at the per unit price and I had kind of a benchmark. If it was over... Usually my benchmark at the time was if it was over 33 cents per unit, Mm -hmm. I wasn't buying it. It was too expensive. Mm -hmm. There was a lot that's in that range and below. At least there was at the time. I know this now several years later, things are crazy. But basically at that point, anything that was over 33 cents was some kind of premium snack, like mixed nuts or some kind of like gourmet. Protein bar. Protein bar, something like that. And so when it came to those individually packed snacks, I know that when you're shopping, whether you're shopping for 400 kids or you're shopping for four or you're shopping for one, you know, the calculus that you're running on individual snacks, you're not getting a whole lot uh, in in quality. You're not getting a whole lot in uh, caloric value. Right. Uh, so for example, the one I thought of when I came up with this was the Costco small bags of Pirate's Booty. They also sell a large bag of Pirate's Booty. And I think it's like close to $20 for the like 40 pack of the small ones. So that's about 50 cents if I remember what I the numbers I just said. I think it's about 50 cents a little bag, but there is almost nothing in them. I think it's like 40 cal. I mean, it's like super low. Yeah. So what I was finding was I was buying them for our kids and our older boys who are very active and six and a half and eight were actually taking two because it was so small and it wasn't like I don't even blame them because 40 calories is just not that's not filling them up. And so I was letting neither neither is 80 calories. Right. And so but I was letting them take two. And so then I was like, we are blowing through these like crazy. And then if you buy the larger bag, not only is the unit price just way, way lower for the exact same product. We're not even talking about different brands. We're just talking about in the big bag versus in the little bag. You just get so much more. One thing that 
we learned or was kind of put upon us as as parents packing snacks for school was one of the teachers that a few of our kids have had was very, very adamant about packing a snack that was centered around protein. Mm-hmm. So low sugar, low sugar, I guess priority. that's true. Low sugar. So mm-hmm. cookies were bad. Like we, we'd probably get a note home or something if it was like we, a, a day okay, or two. We're, we're going to get a lot of, <laughs> we're going to get a lot of write-ins about this. She would not say cookies are bad. She would ask them to bring something that would fill them up better. Okay. Thank you for clarifying. That's, that's true. Yeah. But I, I bring it up because it actually has been helpful. I think at, at the time it was like, it seemed very arbitrary to us. It's like, we're, we're, we got to give them food. We just got to, whatever we're sending is fine. But now a few years into sending snacks to school with our kids, we've set the precedent or trained them to say, you can take a carb based thing. So pretzels or chips or something that's uh, less filling, less filling. And you also need to pair that with something that is more filling. So some staples in our house are, you know, pretzels and some pepperoni or pretzels and peanut butter, peanut butter, uh, crackers and cheese cubes. Yeah. So having both of those things mm-hmm. allows our kids to enjoy what they're eating. You know, they still get the the carb thing, the cracker or whatever, the chip that they like that they really want. And they also pair it with something that's going to fill them up. I think it's the best of both worlds because it does keep them more full throughout the day. Yeah, so we do we do definitely have some individual snacks, but I do not rely on that as our primary way to offer snacks either at home or at school. So as a practical matter at school, if you also send snacks to school or daycare and so you're like, well, sending a snack equals a prepackaged store-bought item, we bought these little containers at Walmart. They're like $3. They have really nice snap-on lids and they're divided in half into two sections, but they're a small snack size option. They're not like a large lunchbox. And that's what we send the boys with, with like, like he said, pretzels on one side and uh, pepperoni on the other, crackers on one side and cheese cubes on the other. Um, And they're a really quick way to grab two things that it takes negligibly more time than grabbing a granola bar. You know, like it's the amount of time to grab two things and put them into a little container is seconds more than grabbing a a prepackaged item and you're saving a ton of money. I mean, when they put the the pretzels and peanut butter into that container for their snack. I would, if I had to wager a guess, I would say it costs 30 cents. The amount of food that they are putting in there um, is very low. My not worth your money for this week is more of a threshold um, than a specific item. So at what point does it become not worth your money? How many video streaming services... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> does it cross the, the line to be not worth your money? To have simultaneously? To have simultaneously, because yeah. we do have yes. a few simultaneously yeah. right now. Yes. I am a huge advocate of signing up, using it to watch the show that you want to watch that they have, and then canceling it while you sign up for another one. So we are always rotating the ones that we have. Sometimes they cancel or you know it ends and then we're like, oh, shoot, we wanted to watch that. We'll sign up for one more month. I I would not have more than I would say four would be the most I would have because I just don't think it's possible to be watching that many things at the same time, like to be invested, you know. So we've done like Hulu and we finished watching Only Murders in the Building and The Bear. And then now I'm not renewing it because we don't have anything else on there that we want to watch right now. Like if they come out with another season of The Bear, then we would sign back up. We've had HBO Max to watch through Friends and a few other things, but we don't have that one right now. 
we currently have, let me think, we currently have Amazon Prime, Netflix, Disney Plus, and I think we have a free trial of Apple TV right now from mm -hmm. buying like a new phone for you or something. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, we Peacock. We yeah. have had we don't have it right now, but that is one that we sign up for and watch things and then cancel while we don't use it. Yes. When you said four, that seemed high to me. But then as you listed them out, I was like, we definitely have at least four. <laughs> I think we have at least four right now. Yeah. And if it was just you and I, that m that number might be lower. But we also like there's just staples that our kids also enjoy mm -hmm. watching, or that it's easy to put on. I also 100% play the sign up under a new email address to get a free trial game. I proudly play that game. If you don't have more than a dozen personal email addresses, <laughs> you are doing it wrong. If you start a business, you each get a new email for it. <laughs> I'm sure my my VA, if she's listening, I'm sure she sees like free trial emails come through my work inbox that she manages where I'm just like, sorry, Megan, but I wanted a free trial. <laughs> <laughs> Were you for threshold? Were you thinking in dollars or in quantity? I was thinking it's easier to to think through number of services yeah. because they all do cost a different amount, but they all cost relatively. They're in the same ballpark. Yeah. Uh, now I will say, sometimes when I'm building custom budgets, I'm very surprised at the number of simultaneous high level streaming services like Hulu Live, which is like $70 a month instead of $7 a month. Or like some households have like cable and seven streaming services or YouTube TV, which is kind of like cable at this point, YouTube TV plus a bunch of other ones. I, I rarely see a problem in the number of dollars being spent because they, like you said, they do tend to be low price. Like I think if we signed up for the low level of Hulu and the low level of Peacock and stuff at the same time, we'd maybe be paying like $40 a month, mm -hmm. which is a fraction of the cost of cable. But I think it is a good idea to look at what you're paying and realize that when you cancel something, you're not permanently unable to watch that. So if you're not currently watching that service, cancel it. And then when you think of like, oh, a new season of this show I like came out, sign up for it, watch it and cancel it again. And there's no, you're not penalized for doing that. Yeah, and if you're worried about missing out on the newest season of whatever show, then if it happens to come online and you don't hear about it and you don't miss it, you know, it's fine. Maybe you, you know? don't need it. Yeah, <laughs> forget about the FOMO and just save the money. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, I think it's just like physically impossible to actually need that many services at the same time because you're just like not watching that many shows simultaneously. Like within one month, if you're paying monthly – if you pay for seven streaming services in one month, did you like legitimately watch an extended amount of TV on all seven of them in that one month? It'd be impressive if you've done that. I'd be, yeah. Please let us know because I would like to know how you did it. Those are specific life choices. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I think that's not worth your money for this week. Join us next time on the Debt Free Mom <laughs> podcast. And let us know if those things are worth or not worth your money. Thanks for listening to the Debt-Free Mom podcast. If you want to join me as a guest on the show, go to dfmpodcast.com. The Debt-Free Mom podcast is hosted by me, Carly Hill, and is produced, edited, and mixed by Kyle Hill. Music for this episode was written by Kyle Hill. 
Hit subscribe wherever you're listening to join in with every new episode as we grow our confidence and contentment in our personal finances. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.